It's not a kid you can pick up from the armpits. You're, you're, you're going to create blisters. The worst disease you never heard of. My dad is 90 years old, and he said it himself. My 90 years, I have never felt the pain that, that my grandson feels in a week. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Yeah, grief will come and it'll be horrible, but I will never, never regret it. The love is gigantic. Gigantic. If they're able to cure EB, they'll be able to pave the way to cure 7,000 other genetic conditions. Sylvia Corridan is the mother of three children. Her first baby was stillborn at full term, followed by a miscarriage. Her son, Nikki, followed and was diagnosed at birth with epidermolysis bullosa. Her last son, Connor, was born healthy. She is a graphic designer and the author of several books. Sylvia, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Your son, Nikki, has a condition called epidermolysis bullosa. What is that condition and what does it mean for Nikki to have that condition? Okay, so epidermolysis bullosa is basically a blistering condition. And so um, the name was given, uh, was came up with at the end of the 1800s. So anybody that blistered, they gave it the epidermolysis bullosa. Because bullosa in Latin means blister, and epidermolysis means the laceration of the epidermis. And so anybody that had a blistering condition got that name, even though, you know, years later we figured out, you know, they figured out, okay, there's many different forms of this, right? So, um, Nikki has the recessive dystrophic form. There are three main, main forms of the condition. Um, the the simplex one where the blisters are in the epidermis and then there's the junctional where the the blisters appear in the in the junction between the epidermis and the dermis and the dystrophic are in the dermis that means they're the deepest ones and that's why they develop scars that they sometimes they don't heal well they end up having a lot of issues related to um to the scarring like the hands mitten up and the mouth um mouth kind of webs together it's um yeah it's uh it's hard i mean nikki um by the time he was um one years old he already had issues with his mouth um his uh, tongue is kind of like a little bit webbed to the bottom of his mouth uh, he has no cheek no place in between the the teeth and the gums kind of thing. And so he has a lot of those issues. And so um, he's G-tube fed because um, the esophagus also wants to shrink up. It's um, There's a lot of issues besides the blistering outside. You know, there's problems inside as well. Okay. How, how did you learn that Nikki had EB? Is that something that was diagnosed right when he was born? Or um, uh, later yeah. Any sign before he was born? Um, no, no sign before he was born. Of the, of course, EB is really rare, especially the form that he has. 
And so even if we had done genetic testing, they would have never looked for that. Um, but when he was born, they went ahead um, and cleaned up his mouth, aspirated the liquid in his mouth. And by doing so, they aspirated all the skin from his mouth. And so they knew right away something was wrong. Um, so they called in a dermatologist. At the time, we lived in, uh, in the Phoenix area. And so every Tuesday morning, nor yeah, every Tuesday morning, a renowned dermatologist in Tucson used to come up to Phoenix Children's Hospital. So they called them and asked them to stop by, you know, my hospital where I was at to take a look at Nikki and see what he thought. Because the um, right away, the pediatrician came in the room and told me, we think he either has herpes or he has a staph infection, or there's a this very rare condition where you blister epidermal, you know, EB, you know. And I'm like, at the time, I was just like, okay. So the dermatologist came up. So Nikki was 12 hours old when the dermatologist came up from Tucson. And uh, he looked at him, did a test with the eraser. And basically, the test with the eraser is you put the eraser next to the skin and you twist it. If the skin comes off, you have EB basically. Mm. And so he came in the room and he said, yeah, he has EB. And they asked me for permission to take a biopsy so they could find out what form of EB and everything else. And so we didn't get a diagnosis per se until Nikki was, I want to say it was Nikki was born November 25th. So it wasn't until early January. So five, six weeks later, we finally got the recessive dystrophic EB. Okay. Okay. And was it that doctor who was coming up from Tucson who gave the diagnosis to you? Um, they, um, uh, what happened, I think it was them they called, I don't remember, but I know the biopsy was sent to North Carolina because at the time in 1996, it was the only EB lab, you know, where they would test and see for what kind of EB they had. So yeah, that was it. Okay. Yeah. Did you get that diagnosis over the phone or by, I don't know if by the time you got it, you'd already been kind of thought, been thinking that that was the most likely um, or if it was still kind of a surprise or did you know what that meant already? Well, I didn't know anything about EB, you know, and so the doctor gave me the three different form, a, a, a paper with the three different forms and mm -hmm. we were looking and we didn't know you know, we I, we had never seen it before. The internet, you know, back in 1996, it was not like what it is today. Today, you could go and look at photos of all the different forms and kind of, you know, get an idea. You know, okay, this is probably this. You know, but back then, we uh, th there was nothing. You know, and so when we finally were told recessive dystrophic, we were like, oh, great. You know, <laughs> great. The worst one, fantastic. You know? so, yeah. And so, but no, they called us. They didn't, um, didn't, we didn't get it in person or anything. No, they called us. Yeah. Um, do you think it would have been helpful to be able to Google or do you think like doing a Google image search just would have, would have been I kind of think, scary? You know, I always tell people to go ahead and Google things, you know, and uh, to keep in mind that every condition has the mild and the moderate and the severe. Mm -hmm. And and you need to, knowledge is power. You know, you need to figure out what you're dealing with, you know. Right. Um, uh, and so that's what, that's what, that's what helped me the most, I think. I still Google EB every single day. Um, and so I think... Like I said, knowledge is power. To me, yes, you'll see what 
what's the worst possible scenario, but you'll also see people who have it mild, you know, so, so you have your eyes open and your heart open to all the possibilities, you know? Um, so that's my thought. That's my personal yeah. preference. <laughs> how did you, how did you react to the diagnosis? How did you feel about him having this diagnosis? Well, um, at first, you know, my previous baby, Alex was still born at full term. And so to me, I am like, okay, so he'll get blisters, whatever. He's, he's alive. He's breathing, you know? And so, um, to me, it's like, whatever, I'll just take care of them. You know, I, I mean, I was mama bear from day one. You know, I wanted to make sure we could do everything we could to make sure this kid was going to be okay, you know. And I think I think that's a different scenario for most parents. Most parents, um, they don't even, they just get the diagnosis and it's, it's the end of the world, you know. Um, and so I know my... I know my point of view was a little different than most, most just because of my previous experience, you know, my, a year and a half earlier, I had to buy a casket. I had to buy a cemetery plot, you know, mm -hmm. to me, Nikki was here. I, you know, I wanted to take care of him. I do everything I could to make sure he was going to be okay. You know? Right. Yeah. So. With Alex, did you ever get an explanation for why he was stillborn? Um, at first, they didn't know. Um, at first, they said possibly a cord accident because the cord was wrapped around his neck. But after Nikki was born, um, we had taken many photos of Alex, by the way. Um, and I know this sounds weird. A lot of people say, oh, that was morbid. But, you know, that was my only child at the time. I wanted pictures to remember him by, you know. And so we took a lot of photos. So when Nikki was born with EB. All of a sudden, every doctor wanted to see those photos. And there's photos um, of Alex's skin peeling everywhere. Um, and yes, stillborn babies do lose their skin. That's the first thing that goes, but not quite to that extent. I had gone to um, support groups for... Um, support groups for um, the people who had babies that were stillborn lost babies and we all shared our photos and all the other parents photos didn't look like Alex did maybe mm -hmm. they had a little beady piece of skin missing somewhere you know but Connor had sheets of skin coming off and so that's pretty much all everybody said of course we'll never know for sure uh but it does look like he most likely had EB as well so okay yeah did they think that that would have contributed? Is that a, can that mean a higher chance of stillbirth or problems in utero? Um, yeah, I mean, I talked to Dr. Marinkovich at Stanford uh, when Nikki was about one years old, and I asked them that specific question, is that the reason why Alex was stillborn because EB, you know? And he said, for sure, you know, maybe EB is a lot more common in pregnancy than we think, but a lot of these babies are stillborn before beforehand so we'll never know you know but for sure there is something to be said about that you know I mean Alex was a little baby so probably had it maybe even more severe because to me Nikki was strong he was bigger than Alex was I mean Nikki was a strong kid he's still strong to this day his immune system blows me away every time considering all the wounds that he has everywhere he just beats it 
like a champ. I mean, just blows my mind. But um, so maybe Alex was maybe a little bit more severe. Who knows? You yeah. know, it's all up for speculation, I guess. Yeah. And how, um, so you said you were like mama bear, <laughs> ready to take care of him. What were, yes. you, what were you told you needed to do to, to keep him as healthy as possible? Um, well, the doctor, the dermatologist from Tucson came up and he uh, taught us to lance the blisters. And uh, right away, because with EB, um, they, they keep growing. If you don't poke them and drain, drain them, they will keep growing. And a little beady wound can become a gigantic wound if you don't. And so um, that's one thing we did, keeping, you know, the blisters as small as possible and then cover them up. And over the years with Niki, I found ways to um, cover them, you know, cover. We found zero form. We love zero form. I mean, at first we were told um, to use just Vaseline gauze over them to keep the area moist, but we zero form to me uh, was better. Zero form is also moist, but it has antimicrobial properties. So it beats, it uh, fights infections on top of that, you know, and so... Uh, so we love that. And then I, you know, as we went on over the years, it was kind of like um, we would just learn from our mistakes. You know, we just go over and over and over again. Okay, this didn't work. Let's try that. This didn't work. Let's try that. You know, and so for Nikki being bandaged, uh, he's bandaged quite a lot, even on areas that have no wounds because of how easy he his skin gets wounded. And so you know, most kids or patients with the, what he has with the recessive dystrophic form of EB, they end up dying from uh, infections, from skin cancer. And so if, if he has as little wounds as possible, then we can eliminate those possible issues, you know. And so, um, yeah, and, you know, as Nikki grew up, he knew, he, he just kind of, I didn't do anything against his will, you know, if anything, he tells me, okay, you need to wrap me more or how, why don't you do this more over here or less over there? You know, it's, um, it's, uh, we're a team, you know? Yeah. We're a team. And if someone, I think if someone were in your situation today, one of the first things they do is go to Google or go to social media, like search with hash, hashtags to look for other parents dealing with something similar. Did you have any, contact with other families um not right away because it was so rare um uh, uh, when Nikki was then uh, four months old I found another parent but it was a newer parent than me they had just had a baby so it was the blind leading the blind <laughs> and, <laughs> and then by the time Nikki was one um, we actually, um, the, we found out there was going to be a meeting at Stanford of parents. And so we were so happy. We went up and I met with, um, Lorraine. Lorraine is one of my best friends. Um, she also has an, a, a son with EB. It was two months younger than Nikki. And, um, She's still my best friend to this day. So I met other parents. and uh, But, you know, as far as the internet goes, that was rough. Um, uh, 1996, I mean, there was no Facebook, no nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so to find other parents, it was, uh, it was a challenge. And over the years, if anything, I had people find me because um, when Nikki was little, I started the eBeingForWorld.com because um, I wanted the – 
to spread the word about this rare disease and how we needed a cure and this and that. And so, so if anything, people started finding me. And so that was the best thing. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. We love making patient stories, and we love that we are able to provide it to you without ads or influence from corporate sponsorships, and we would really like to keep it that way. If you'd like to support our podcast, please donate to Patient Stories at greygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com forward slash podcast forward slash donate. Uh, when you were given Nikki's diagnosis or on that sheet with the three different types of E that talked about the three different types of EB, did they tell you how long they thought Nikki would probably live with EB or did you, they give you a range of um, they what life was usually like for these kids? They, they didn't. Um, because at the time we didn't even know if he had a mild form of recessive dystrophic or a severe form. There mm-hmm. are many subforms underneath because there are so many genetic defects that can cause the condition, you know. Um, I remember seeing um, at the beginning all these teenagers that w- were having a rough go uh, because when you, you know your body needs a lot more nutrition when you're a teenager, and so that's when we decided to put a G tube in him so nutrition wouldn't be an issue, you know. And I mean, I remember back in the late '90s. Uh, th- usually the cause of death would be something like a heart failure or liver failure or kidney failure, that sort of stuff. And so to me, nutrition was number one. And then when we finally saw the doctors at Stanford, they said infection, infection, number one issue, you know, and I'm like, okay, let's get the infections down. You know, to me, it, it was always a learning experience. I wanted to learn as much as possible about this, you know? And so they, I've seen, I've seen RDEB patients live until their, you know, the more severe forms, I want to say, probably up till their 30s, you know, until um, this day. I don't know if I, if I know, uh, like, a severe form of a patient with a severe form that lived beyond 40. Um, so um, that's my scary thought right now because Nikki's 24 and so uh, we are in more need of a cure now as much as possible Nikki's getting up there yeah Yeah. what was it like for him like going to school was he in regular school classes did he have to take extra precautions um yeah he he went to regular school he had an IEP um and so they were always ready you know to they had an aid for him and he normally sat just on the side of the class or behind um, or in front, depending on the, you know, how the classroom was situated. Because, you know, little kids, um, especially like kindergarten, first graders, second graders, they can be really rambunctious, you know. And so (laughs) you you don't want these kids to just run run on him accidentally, you know. Um, uh, And so, but we had an aid for him. I fought for an aid. And I got an aide so that she could help him with even doing little things, you know, even going his um, in the desk and make sure he had a pen or, or give him the pen or open his backpack and, and give him the book he needed, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that helped a lot. He was really smart. He always constantly in elementary school made um, the honor roll, always. Um Middle school was tough for him. Middle school was tough. Um, I don't think he got as much um, support 
as mm-hmm. um, as he should have. We had issues. I wrote about it in my book. Uh, I called that it is in a chapter called the middle school nightmare because he had a particular teacher who was just horrendous, um, just treated him like a leper. And that was just awful. And, you know, I should have known that was going to be awful because the first day of school, the first day of middle school, they, we had set it up for an aide to come and help us and everything. The first day of middle school, he meets the aide and the aide looks at him. And then she looks at me. She's the first day of middle school. He meets the aide and the aide looks at him. And then she looks at me. She's, she's like, can I talk to you? It's going to be disinvolved. I don't want to be sued for doing something wrong. Like I would mm-hmm. sue anybody. You know, that was such a slap in the face. Um, so I'll never forget. I never forget that. <laughs> never forget that. Was that then? And then did he continue? Then did he work with that person? She was just telling you that or she, she quit? No, no, she, she quit right there. The first day, the first day she saw Nikki, she quit. So Nikki couldn't even start school until we got another aide. Um, mm-hmm. And we, he actually had uh, an aide uh, after that that was fantastic. And uh, after that, an okay aide. But those years there in middle school were, were not very, very happy for him. And then high school, um, he ended up going to a um, charter high school mm-hmm. because it was too much for him to go to school every day. Um, it took way too much out of him. And so I, f- I felt that charter high school would be easier for him because he only had to go in once or twice a week. Um, the teacher would meet with him and give him the work he needed to do, like a little, basically a bunch of papers, you know, for tests and stuff that he needed to do. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go back in and he'd, show him the, his work and he got graded and give him another packet of work, you know? And so that worked out really easy for him. That was perfect for him. So I'm glad that existed. <laughs> yeah. Was that, did that make it harder for him socially or with friends or it sounds like middle school was so rough that anything different was going to be Oh better. yeah. Oh yeah. The, um, the elementary, he, he remembers, he looks back at elementary school with fondness. He had a lot of friends. He had a lot of people that helped him and stuff. But then for middle school, not only we had moved, so he wasn't going to go to with his friends, you know, he wasn't going to be with his friends from middle, from elementary school. They, everybody treating him like um, separate, different. So, so that was hard. And, and, um, and also high school with the charter school. He had no friends. The only friends he has nowadays is on the computer. He has four separate friends and he tells me all about them all the time. It's so sweet. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Was he able to do any schooling after high school? He's just not interested. <laughs> <laughs> he's done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, I can imagine he's ready. He's like, okay, that was plenty. Yeah. yeah enough. So the book you referenced earlier, is that Butterfly Child, A Mother's Journey? Yes, that's right. Butterfly Child, it um, starts, I started the book with Alex's story because the way I reacted after Nikki was born and everything that I did for Nikki, it goes back to losing Alex, Going goes back to uh, bearing Alex. And so I started with his story and then I go through the first 18 years of life 
of, of Nikki's life. And I talk about everything in there, everything from why I did the things I did, um, how I was treated, how the some horrible things that happened, problems with insurance company services that were not offered nor given, uh, everything, everything you could possibly think of, you know, is in there, you know, and also, you know, I'm Italian. I was, I was born and grew up in Italy. And so my way of doing things is perhaps a little different because I'm a multicultural person. I, I don't know. I, I, I do feel I have some unique aspects of me that kind of, kind of, you know, that's why I parent the way I do, because I take my cues from my mom the way my mom did it. And so I'm a little different. To me, you know, America is very much about what you're going to do for your career and uh, success and this and that. And to me, success is not so much about how much money you have in the bank is, is how, what a great, what a good person you are, you know, um, that's, that's my definition of success. And Nikki's an amazing, successful person as far as that goes in my book. Yeah. Did you have much family support in raising Nikki, either from family, like living in Arizona close to you or family in Italy? Um, well, when Nikki was one, I was kind of about, I was about close to mental breakdown. Actually, it was a little bit before his first birthday. I was close to mental breakdown. And so I remember calling my mom and my dad in in Europe. They live in Italy. And I asked if I could go and stay with them for a few months until I got my quote unquote SHIT together, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they said, of course, come, come, come. And so I went there in February when Nikki was a little over one and I stayed there for eight months. Um, and that was the best thing I could do. You know, um, by the time I came back, I got, I knew everything. My dad was amazing. My dad with Nikki was, was amazing. And my mom too. My mom is still the only person in the world besides, of course, Nikki's dad, you know, that I would become completely comfortable leaving Nikki with, you know, to her for her to do everything that he needs to do g-tube and all this stuff um uh my my parents were great of course they live in europe so it's not like they could come and you know help me out any other way uh as far as other family from his dad's side really there was nobody my in-laws lived in uh, new mexico um we had no family in arizona and then I moved to uh, California when I got remarried. The greatest thing in, about California was that it has a lot of uh, social programs that help children with disabilities mm. and their parents. And so that, that helped a lot. And I talk about that in the book as well. But I never had any family member from either family, really, just come and stay with us for a while, you know, Um Nick's grandma, his, his other grandma came and stayed for a week when Nikki was little. That's about it. When Nikki was born, my mom was here and uh, my mother-in-law was here. My mom stayed for a month. My mother-in-law only stayed for, I think, I want to say a week. And then she came back and stayed another week later, but then she never came back again. No. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's how it goes. Such a hard condition to deal with. Yes. Yes. And I felt I was alone for most of it. You know, I mean, his dad and I, we get along great now. We've been divorced uh, for many years now, for 20 years, but his dad and I get along great. But 
and it, it's interesting because when we lost Alex, uh, that made us come closer. You know, I know a lot of people say the opposite, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. To us, it made us closer. But when we had Nikki, um, it was something that I don't know. I know that most families I know are not longer together. Most EB families that I know are not intact anymore after the child with EB comes. There are some, of course, there's always some, the exception to the rule. You know, there are some out there that are. But um, I remember um, talking to a physical therapist um, that was seeing Nikki when he was little. And she and I asked her, Do, you know, what is the divorce rate on special need parents? And, and she said a good 75%. So. So not only you have this to deal with, you know, your partner, you, you have this dealing with the divorce, you know, so that's just on top of it. And um, not, I was not alone in it. And there's a lot of other people out there that had to go through the same thing. But I'm just lucky that I found, um, I found, uh, you know, my my new husband, we, it's not that new. We've been together for 15 years, no, 20 years, 21 years now, almost 21 years. Um, He's just, he just loves me, loves Nikki, you know, he didn't care about my baggage, you know, he just loved me. So he's the best. So got so lucky. And so you met him when Nikki was just around three years old then? Um, you mean my husband? Yeah. My new, my new husband. I married Greg in 2003. Nikki was five, I want to say. He mm-hmm. was five, yeah. I divorced his dad. Well, we got divorced um, when he was three. So, but he's a very much part of his life. I mean, he he keeps him a week a week on, a week off. Um, he knows how to do all the bandages. You know, Nikki's dad is awesome. I can't say anything bad about him at all. It's just yeah. that it came to that point where just we were, we're much better friends than we were a couple. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Nikki has a younger brother, right? Yes, Connor. Do they have the same father or? No, no. He's the son with my new husband. Um, He was born um, in 2003. No. Okay. So my husband and I got married in 2002. Connor was born in September 2003. He is 17. He'll be 18 uh, later this year. He's awesome. He's awesome. He... From the time he was little, he was Nikki's little, you know, servant. (laughs) (laughs) But I always made sure that, you know, to do things with him, to do things just for him. And so, you know, just the past, I would just take him to the zoo, just him and I. I would, you know, go to field trips with the school, just for him and I, you know. So I always made sure to have time with him, you know, so he wouldn't resent his 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 brother what was your pregnancy and delivery like with connor with connor i was scared out of my mind (laughs) because i had had my first pregnancy was a stillborn baby and then i had a miscarriage at eight weeks and then nikki was born with eb and so there was no time that i felt that was safe you know i could miscarry he could die at the end he could have a condition who knows and so I remember not telling anybody I was pregnant. Uh, of course, my mom, you know, and just the main people until we did a ultrasound, not the ultrasound, I'm sorry, a, what do you call it when they go in with the needle to do oh, a am- amniocentesis. Amniocentesis. Yeah. Amniocentesis. Uh-huh. And they checked for everything that they could. 
of course, EB was not one of them, but because both parents need to be carriers, I didn't feel like that was my main thing. You know, my main thing, because I was 39 when I was pregnant with Connor, uh-huh. my main thing was like Down syndrome, you know, um, I got to make sure I got to be ready, this and that. And we did the, we did the test, everything's fine. And it's a boy. So it was great because when I asked Nikki if he wanted a little brother or a little sister, he said, I don't want a little sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Hopefully he would have come around. If, if it yeah. <laughs> but it was a boy. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Nikki, guess what? You get your wish. So no. So um, yeah. So it was great. So the delivery was great. Um, he had a plan C-section and it went smoothly. Um, his daddy was there and his daddy um, didn't wasn't able to be at his daughter's birth. And so to be at his son's birth, that was mega important for him. And so it's good. What is Connor and Nikki's relationship like today? Well, um, they're not as close as they used to be, mainly because they play different games, they do different things, and they have a way of talking to each other that bothers me, but they they just, they're boys, you know, they're guys, they're going to just say things, and I... I see Connor saying things to Nikki that bother me. I say, Nikki say things to Con- Connor that bother me. I'm like, no, that's just how we talk, mom. I'm like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> yeah. But they're close. They're close. They're definitely close. Um, and, you know, my big thing, you know, I read books about sibling rivalry, especially between a healthy child with the child with uh, any special need. Mm-hmm. And the resentment from the healthy child is is there, you know, uh, you know, there's something to be worried about, you know. But I made I so made sure that, you know, to give Connor all kinds of attention that that didn't happen. And so I'm really I'm really so relieved. Um, I'm really relieved, but, yeah. but, but Connor does feel bad for Nikki, you know? Um, and of course, Nikki, he is jealous of his brother because he doesn't have EB, but at the same time, he doesn't want his brother to have EB. And that's what he told me several times. Right. So I'm jealous, but I don't want him to have it. You know, just me, it's enough, you know, so... Do you have a sense of what kind of, I'm sure you do. You said you Google EB every day. What kind of research is going on um, related to EB and any possible cures or better treatments than what we have now? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. There are skin grafts. There are, um, there's a medicine, there's infusions, there's, there's many things. And there's a lot more now than there used to be even just a few years ago. Just right now, it's just a matter of, going through with the trials there's many different trials nikki was part of a couple of trials um he was part of the the um, skin grafts and it didn't really work for him because his body basically does not make any collagen type 7 at all that's his issue right um so for those whose eb is milder and by saying milder I mean their body makes a little collagen type 7 you know Mm -hmm. Um, uh, when you do skin grafts the body doesn't see it as foreign you know they're like oh this is just more collagen type saving great you know maybe we'll give you an infusion of this and you'll be fine no more blisters but Nikki doesn't make it at all and so his body sees this as a foreign thing and, and, and rejects it and so that's the big issue with Nikki right now um, because his, 
his, and so you have to genetically modify his DNA um, to be able to do this. You know, to for me, the thing I forgot which there's so many now I kind of lost count, but there's one particular trial that they're looking at. It's called the splicing, where they take out the genetic material that is defective and put in um, the correct sequence. Mm-hmm. And that that would be really the only way to to cure Nikki, Nikki right. per se, and that would be curing, curing, not a treatment or whatever. That would cure it, you know. And mm-hmm. I know this is happening, and there's a lot of trials going on right now. They were saying that there's a lot of money going into EB research right now because if they're able to cure EB, they'll be able to pave the way to cure seven thousand other genetic conditions and which and these conditions have no treatments right now nobody's looking for a cure or nothing you know so that's huge and that's why you know i am just so making sure people know about this you know this is not just about nikki this is not just about eb this is about a lot of people right like a proof of concept if you can do certain things with one condition it can work for other conditions absolutely absolutely before having Nikki, did you have any experience with children who had special needs? I did not. You know, I grew up in Italy um, in the 60s and 70s. The only special need child I can say that I've ever met was a guy. And I don't know if he had Down syndrome or something similar, but he was just um, walking free in the little village that we were living in and um, people would always help him and, and do things. He was older. He was maybe in his thirties. Um, that's really the only one. There was never another kid in school with something. Um, I never did it. None of my family or friends had children with disabilities at all. I had a only a two co-workers that I worked with one of them had a son with Down syndrome, and um, another one had a cousin with Down syndrome, and that's it. That's it. I never, I never met anybody. So to me, it was a whole different, a new world I had to learn about. Is there anything that you thought would be true about that world of children with special needs that ended up to be totally different from what you thought? Um, you know, I think... People in general feel sorry, you know, for, for these people, you know, um, even for Nikki or for kids with Down syndrome or for other things. But what I find out is that the love, the love that I feel, even when I am at, um, I take Nikki to, to camp or to, um, well, to camp in particular, that's where a lot of EB kids are. And there's, he shares a room usually with uh, two other kids with EB that are pretty much as severe as he is. Mm. And as I see them, all I want to do, I just was just give them a hug and cover them with kisses. I mean, the love these kids, um, and, and adults, of course, emanate. It's just so, it need, like I said before, it needs its own zip code, you know. Um, the love I have for Nikki just, it's just an all-encompassing, you know. I just dread the day that he may no longer be with us because I am going to be a mess. I'm going to be 
AMS. Um, and, you know, that's probably why some people try to stay away from them because, or try not to get too attached because they know they'll die someday. I just uh, disagree. I mean, you got to give them as much love as possible. Yeah, grief will come and it'll be horrible, but I will never, never regret it. You know, um, that's basically the main thing, you know, that I can say. The love is gigantic, gigantic. They're to- these people are totally missing out. Totally missing out. And when you talk about um, love, and then you're mentioning affection, and I know on one of your either your on one of your websites that you specifically mention, you know, the skin being so fragile that you yeah. know, even like cuddles, you know, can damage the skin. How did how did you navigate that? Like when he was a baby, and then getting older, like how do you do that? Like show affection and be close to your oh, child, no. and like that that anxiety over over the skin yeah of course um, and that's one of the reasons why I bandaged them as much as I did and made sure he always had clothes on and stuff and so mm-hmm. that I could pick him up you know of course this is not when he was little it's not like a, it's not a kid you can pick up from the armpits you're, you're, you're gonna create blisters you know so you mm-hmm. have to be really careful maybe put your your hand under the butt you know where the diaper is and just kind of be you know, don't use your fingers, use your hand, you know, type of thing. And um, just the, just the, the gentle, it's not the touch per se that causes blisters, is the rubbing, you know. And so you need to just kind of be, you know, yes, you can give him a kiss, just not a hard kiss, you know. And um, I mean, I lay in bed with Nikki nowadays. If any day he wakes up, um, I go and lay in bed with him and I just kind of cuddle with him. Of course, I can't be as forceful as a kiss hug as I give Connor, <laughs> uh-huh. but it's just the gentleness, you know, you just have to be gentle. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to give these kids the kiss and the hug because they're afraid to hurt them. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons why when I'm at camp, say, I make it a point, I go, I go say, Nikki, good night. I give him a hug and a kiss. And then I go to, go to the, all the other kids and give them all hugs and kisses, you know, because they deserve it. They need it. They get so little of it, you know. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just be gentle. That's all. Is there anything else you'd really like people listening to know about EB? Um, it's just that we need awareness. We need a cure. Um, these kids, they don't call it the worst disease you never heard of for no reason. You know, it's really horrible. Um, the pain these kids go through is beyond anything that I've ever seen in my whole life. I can go through my whole life. You know, my dad is 90 years old and he said it himself. My 90 years, I have never felt the pain that, that my grandson feels in a week, you know, and that's true. Um, my dad feels a really big connection with Nikki, even though he's not, you know, he's not anywhere near him. He's in Italy, but um, just, we need a cure. We need a cure. There's a lot of people out there looking for it uh, now more than ever. There's um, a lot of celebrities now that are involved. And it sings to my heart because for many years there was, yes, we were told there was something going on, but not as much as today. And just get get educated, not just about EB, just about special need families in general, because we, we feel alone, you know, we feel as if, you know, 
we don't matter, you know. Um, I mean, I had two bankruptcies, you know, because the insurance, the, you know, decided, no, he doesn't need that, you know, even though the doctor said, yeah, he does. And um, it's just, please care for people, you know, uh, understand that people are going through things that you know nothing about and um, extend kindness, you know, more than anything. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.